Praise the Lord. Good morning. Uh, it's just wonderful to be here and to receive the ministry that we have been receiving uh, through Martin and through Jonathan this morning. I really loved what Jonathan had to say. I hope it's all written down because I think we all need a copy of that. And uh, I feel a little bit overawed being up here this morning to follow Jonathan. I feel like one of these uh, abattoir owners who's been producing beef burgers and they're about to have it inspected for horse. You know? <laughs> Someone, uh, someone told me a joke that uh, they had found the body of Richard III under the car park of social services in Leicester and they found that horse he was looking for under Sainsbury's. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, you know, this morning, obviously, what I'm going to share is part testimony. And um, I know sometimes there's a danger that when uh, God takes a dealing with us, uh, we immediately rush to sort of put it onto our people. Um, but I'm also aware that in the Bible, very often, God had his prophets or people go through things which were speaking to the nation. And of course, uh, we overcome Satan by the word of our testimony. So there's something very important, not just about having an, a grasp, an intellectual grasp of grace, but having an intimacy with grace and an understanding. And that only seems to come really by walking through um, the type of experience that Martin has been speaking to us about. And um, I'm so delighted this morning to stand here to say that, that what I'm going to share is not just my testimony, but it's been the experience of all of us as, as a leadership team in the church. And uh, it's a delight to have my brothers with me uh, here uh, at this weekend because God has been doing something in us. And it's a good biblical principle. It's seemed good to us yeah. and the Holy Spirit. And so my heart here is that we would all experience and have something to bring to this table. I remember last year when we came here, we had many questions. But we discovered that when we came together, God met with us uh, in a wonderful way. Uh, sometimes in a way that we couldn't predict or couldn't plan. And uh, that's why even as David was sharing that we're not quite sure what or where this session is going to go. And that's a good place to be uh, because we can have faith that uh, God can speak through his servants. I wanted to speak just by reminding us what the, uh, the prophet said yesterday. There was a phrase that really struck me as the Lord was speaking. And uh, he said, uh, in these days the Lord is coming to expose the necessity of your vulnerability that he might deal with the core issues of your ministry. It was that word necessity that, that really struck me. It's a frightening word. Now the Lord would say, you know, if you're going to experience my grace, then I'm going to bring you to a place where you're going to need my grace. And, uh, and that's been our experience. He also spoke of a total recovery of who you are. And that through your vulnerability and your weakness, I'm going to come to you. I love Martin's testimony about uh, and description of the grace of God as well of, as extravagant and outrageous yes. and therefore offensive as it were to the religious mindset. That to me is a description of Jesus. And uh, as Jonathan was sharing with us to us this morning, grace, grace is not a doctrine simply to be preached. It's not an aspect of the gospel. It is the gospel. And in fact, I would go further than that. I would say, of course, that, that uh, just as the word tells us that God is love, uh, he is grace. It's his grace. So many people in this country are called his grace or her grace. He is his grace. He is grace. And of course, John declared that to us. He said that um, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's the, the heart of people. They want an experience of grace. And if they don't see grace personified in us, Christ in us, it's not good enough to give people the gospel. Uh, grace comes. Grace comes and grace embraces people. 
It's interesting that scripture says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is mentioned first. And that's a salutary lesson I have to keep learning. That no matter what truth that we know, we only know by the grace of God. So, grace, brothers, because whatever we think we know, uh, it is by the grace of God. So, I, I, I can't look down on you and you can't look down on me. Uh, everything we have, we cannot boast in. It is all by the grace of God. And that's what unites us. So I want to share with you of, of a personal journey that the Lord's been uh, bringing us over the last uh, uh, six months or so, really, as a church. And it's impossible, of course, when you begin to mention dates and say, well, I, the grace of God started there or started there. The grace of God was on our lives long before we were born. Our parents and our grandparents. And indeed, as Jonathan said this morning, uh, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain for us. The grace has been there uh, and working in our lives that long. Praise God. But what I've learned increasingly is that it's possible to know a doctrine or have a concept of grace on an intellectual level and yet not know grace in your heart, not to have an experience of grace, an intimacy with grace, no personal revelation. Grace does what the law cannot do, what rules and regulations and guidelines can't do. Grace changes the heart. Grace changes the heart. And preaching the law that obedience to commands will bring a reward from God, that can produce behavior modification. But the message, try harder, can never change the heart. And I think that the revelation of that is when we see our own hearts, when the Lord exposes our own hearts and we find what's actually in us and actually what's in our people as well. How can you tell if what you're imparting or preaching is imparting the grace of God, the liberty, the power of God into the spirits and the hearts of the people, or simply bringing people back under the condemnation of the law, the treadmill of religious performance? Sometimes to see what has taken root and what's grown in our people, the heart needs to be exposed. And the Lord has a way of doing that. And very often it's offense that exposes the heart. And uh, we're going to see that later on. It can be difficult to see what's hidden in the, in the hearts of our people because our people are so well trained at, as we are, perhaps we more than ever, at disguising what's in our hearts. We all know the right prayers to pray in the prayer meeting. We all know the right choruses to sing in the worship service. We all know the right verses to share as such. But how do you tell what's in a person's heart? Sometimes it's only when a trial and tribulation offense come that you begin to hear what's in the hearts of the people. I think Martin mentioned this concerning when people left the church, you know, when there's an offense comes, a great offense, you listen to what the people say about the people who've left. And if what you hear is, is unforgiveness and criticism and harsh judgment, then really what you're seeing is no matter how well people try and modify their behavior and behave in church, what's in the heart will come out of the mouth. And it's at times like that actually that those things are exposed. And you can see even the grace of God working through the most difficult church situations simply to bring us to the reality of what's in our hearts. Because if we're not dealing with heart issues, we're only playing at church. I had for years a theology on grace uh, as an intellectual grasp of the goodness of God. I could preach on it, I could teach on it. But all the information I found could not do in me what a revelation of grace has done, which is to make me sit down on the inside which is to make me to rest. And I really want to try and impart you today and communicate that that is the really heart of God, that we would sit in His presence, that we would be at rest, because that brings the one most wonderful fruit into our lives. The seed of the Word of God grows best in undisturbed soil, in hearts that are at rest, you know. 
when the, father, when the farmer plants the seed, he goes and he sleeps. He doesn't keep digging up the seed to see what's happening, you know. It's interesting when the Lord made that covenant with Abraham, he put him to sleep. You know, it's all of Christ. It's all by grace. And he'd have us to know that and to be at rest in that. Two Sundays ago, I was actually speaking about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord reminded me of something I'd forgotten. Now, this was 20 years ago. And the day I got saved, about three hours later, I went to the house of Pastor David Patterson. Where is he? Mm -hmm. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? And here I was, three hours saved, and David says, well, you know what, you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, I'll have some of that. So I went up to, <laughs> I went up to David's house, you know, and he said, well, it's very simple, you know. I'm just going to pray for you, and God's going to do it. You don't have to do anything. God's going to do it. So he laid his hands on me, you know, and he was praying away and praying away. And for about 20 minutes, maybe longer, he was praying. And I was like this, you know. <laughs> And in my heart, I was saying, yes, Lord, well, uh, yes, Lord, I, 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 what, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And eventually, I began to feel sorry for David. Because, you know, and uh, in that moment of feeling sorry for him, my attention was off myself. And I began to relax and say, well, you know what? I'm just going to thank God that I'm saved. How greedy am I looking to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Um, I just thank God. And at the moment I began to thank him, whoa, the power of God came upon me. And I felt this large finger. Do you remember this? I felt a finger. And I, I moved across the front room of his house with this finger on me till eventually I sat down on the sofa. And I felt like this finger was pressing me into the sofa. And it was only two weeks ago I felt the Lord say to me, Philip, I've been trying to get you to sit down for 20 years. Will you sit down? And I did not sit down 20 years ago. I, I felt I, I couldn't. The moment I got saved, I got busy trying to do what God wanted me to do. To be worthy of my salvation I had received. There was so much to be done for God. There was a whole world to be saved. And look at all the examples of what churches were doing and Christians were doing. You know, and so I got with the program, really. I signed up for the program as I understood. And the next 20 years were about meetings, 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 and more meetings to see the church built up. And somehow over those years, I guess my experience of church life grew and my knowledge of the Bible grew and my experience of what worked and what didn't work grew. My experience of the apostolic church grew and the doctrines of the apostolic church and the practice of the church. But somehow in the midst of that, my foundation moved off what Christ had done onto what I was doing, what we were doing, and what we were going to do for God. Now how can you tell if that's happened? If your faith now is resting more on what you're doing and what you're going to do rather than on Christ. And for me the Lord showed me that it's revealed in my disappointment and the level of disappointment I'm carrying with church and with people. That showed me how much I had placed on people rather than placed on the Lord. The more I find myself disappointed with members or leadership or the church, the more I realize how like Martha I've become. The presence of Jesus is right there, but I won't avail of it. I'm too busy analyzing my performance and the performance of everybody else for him. If only everyone would try harder, if only everyone would pray more, if only everyone would give more, if only everyone would fast more, we'd get so much more done for him. And of course, what Jesus said to Martha, he would say to any individual or any church caught up or trapped in the deception of thinking that what we do for him is more important than being with him. Would he not say, my church, my apostolic church, you are worried and anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Now we aren't told of Martha's response as to whether she stopped or sat down, but for my part I did not. I didn't know how to. How do you sit down? How do you stop when there's always another meal to be prepared, another sermon to be preached, more people to be saved? The church in such a state, how do you stop? How do you learn to sit down to receive from God rather than spiritually be on your feet the whole time, standing, ready to serve Him? And I have come to see that the answer to fruitfulness is not found in our practice in what we're doing, it's found in our identity, in who we are being. What the revelation of God has taught me, the revelation of grace, as a servant stands in his master's presence, but a son sits in his father's presence. So my burden today is just to share the strong impression I have that I am not the only person who's been searching for fruitfulness in the wrong place. I believe that as a church, we like many others have sought to change, to refine, to improve what we're doing, to the neglect of examining what we're believing. By definition, grace is all about Him, it's all about His giving, it's all about His generosity, His love. If fruitfulness is a product of His grace, then any lack is not down to His inability to give. It's down to our inability to receive. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We receive by faith and faith rests. Faith rests. And it rests on what He has done. And only when it's on what he has done can it rest. When it's on what you and I are doing or will do, it cannot rest. Only a revelation of his spirit, of the magnitude of what he has done for us, the abundance of his grace will cause us to rest. His grace is so much more than we can ask or imagine that apart from a revelation of the Holy Spirit, our natural minds can't take in. The religious mind cannot take in the grace of God. It is an offense. But yet to avail of the fullness of the grace of God is to glorify Him. I think Martin shared that. What more glorifying thing can we do to Jesus Christ than avail of His grace? For when we avail of His grace, it's all about Him. All the glory, all the attention goes to Him. So a servant stands in his master's presence, but a son sits in his father's presence. Martha stood in Jesus' presence when she should have sat. And we all identify with Martha, of course, because as pastors, week after week, we have to prepare the meal. It falls to us to prepare the practicalities so that people can meet with Jesus. But you know, after all Martha's work, nowhere in Scripture is it recorded the meal that she prepared. What is recorded is Mary's worship. There has come such a deceptive spirit, a mindset of performance into the church, that many of us have come to believe that what would please Jesus would be if we had bigger, better churches. We think he desires that we achieve for him when his heart is that we would simply receive from him. For that glorifies him more. It is abiding in him that is the source of fruitfulness, not working for him. To achieve for him puts the focus on us and what we're doing. To receive from him puts all the emphasis back on him and what he has done for us. And so all the glory goes to him and belongs to him. So how do we receive his grace. Well, Martin intimated about the doors to receiving grace, doors of um, brokenness and need expressed as humility and prayer. And, and Jesus' ministry was characterized by two different responses to him. Broadly, there were two different groups. One group accepted him and one group rejected him. One group came and received grace, another did not recognize or accept grace. It is interesting that the group that received grace were those who recognized their absolute need of it. 
and his free provision of it. He freely gave his grace. In fact, he, he so freely gave his grace that he was offensive enough for the religious to plan his death. When you think of how freely he gave grace, it is staggering to us. I suppose we become familiar with scriptures over the years. We forget what a shock and what a revulsion and an offense to the religious mindset was Jesus and his grace. When you think about him coming to Jericho and staying in Zacchaeus' house, I thought recently, I wonder who he'd stay with if he wanted to really demonstrate grace. And I wondered perhaps if, if Jimmy Sabo was still alive, would he go and stay in his house? How offensive would you find that? There was one group, however, that for the most part were implacably opposed to the message of grace, and that was the religious class, those whose hope was in their own righteousness, their own performance, indeed their own heritage. And how much sometimes of a burden that can be to a group of people to have a heritage. Over the religious group, there appeared to be a blindness, an inability to receive, to recognize him as their provider, and an inability to receive grace from him. They did not come to him and they did not receive from him because they believed themselves to be doing okay without him. And this is what Paul shared about them in Romans 10. The reason the Jews rejected Christ is that they sought to seek and to establish a righteousness of their own. Do you remember that? I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So those who thought they were doing all right would not submit to receive his grace. Those who were desperate came to him gladly. You know, no matter what anybody teaches on grace, there's no impartation of grace until you get to the point where you're ready to receive it. You can hear many, many sermons on grace, but if inside you're listening and saying, that's okay, I don't need to hear that, I don't need that right now, I'm doing okay, you will not receive grace. The Lord says, you know, I oppose the proud, I give grace to the humble. And grace is like water, it flows downhill. How do we receive grace? By getting to the place by the grace of God where we know that we cannot go on as we are without his grace, without him. If we receive by sitting down, by finally resting from our work, then by the grace of God, for some of us, the only time we're ever going to return to the place of grace, because I do believe that that's our problem. We have believed in justification by grace, but we have gone on to sanctification by works. And if we want to re return to the place where it's all by grace, sometimes the only way some of us are going to sit down is when we collapse. And that's my experience. You know, last year, after eight years of hard work and an increasing reliance on sacrifice to build the church for the sake of the growth of the church, I began to see the church fall apart. I began to see people leave the church for various reasons. People began to leave, including some people whom we had great hopes on uh, for the future of the church. Now, we'd seen this happen again and again down through the years, of course. I'm sure you have too. You pour into people, they get to a certain point, and then they go. And, if, and you know, as a pastor, you tend to try and harden your heart to that, you know. You just hang tough and you just sort of keep on going. And I think over the years, uh, myself and, uh, and Nicola, my wife, you know, we used to look at this. And we used to wonder, what was it about us, about the apostolic church? Why were we the nursery to the body of Christ in this city, you know? Why was it that people got to a certain point 
and then looked around and realized that almost every other church in the city seemed to be greener or have better resources than the local apostolic church. Does that ring any bells? But the bunch that left last year, they included several young folk whom we'd really uh, had our, set our hearts on, you know, and it, it really knocked the stuffing out of us. And my first reaction really was to go into default mode, you know, you just keep on going. But uh, for my wife, really, it, it was really the end of the road. Um, she just couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, you know, for weeks she was, uh, you know, crying herself to sleep. And uh, during that time, you know, God really began to, to, to speak to us, and I realized that, that I couldn't keep on going either. You know, I guess really for Nicholas, she felt, I can't give myself to people and, and then be bruised and hurt anymore, you know. It was too much disappointment. It's a very dangerous thing to have your hopes on people. And sometimes it's only when the storm comes that you realize where you've built your foundation. You know, that your foundation has actually been on the people and their behavior and their performance rather than on Christ. So at this time I really found myself questioning some fundamentals about what we were doing in ministry because I could hide no longer from God my disappointment with God. My disappointment that after all these years we had so little to show for it after so much effort and the cry of my heart was, Lord, what more do you want me to do? What do you want us to do? And you know, as we began to cry out to the Lord, our prayer constantly was <coughs> Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, revelation. Lord, give us revelation. By September time, you know, I got so desperate that I said to the Lord, you know, everything's up for examination. If there's something wrong with what I'm believing, please show me. Whatever the consequences are, whatever I need to do, I'm willing to do. Because I guess by that time we realized that our problems are running a little bit deeper than what we were doing. It's what we were believing that the Lord was after. And one night in a meeting in September, there was an altar call. And uh, I went forward with Nicola, you know, during that altar call, and really to confess, really before the, the, the congregation, um, that what I'd found in my heart was unbelief. I was trying to lead a church, and I really didn't know who I was in Christ, or really what Christ had done for me. And I remember that night um, in the church, actually in Strabane, I remember just crying out to God the name of Jesus over and over again. I felt like Bartimaeus, you know. I just said, I am not going to sit down. I don't care about being self-conscious. I'm not moving till I see. I want to see, you know. And I just went in front of the church and I was just wailing out the name of Jesus. And I don't care anymore, Lord, what people think. I need to see. And, you know, at that time, something like scales did fall from my eyes. And the Lord began to speak to me. And um, he began to speak to me through a, a scripture that was my favorite scripture. He began to show me things that I'd never seen before. And that was the story of the prodigal son. And I want to share with you this morning what the Lord showed me. If you have your Bibles, just turn with me to Luke 15. We're going to read this story again, which is such a familiar story. Sometimes the most familiar things are the most surprising, aren't they? Luke 15 from verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and he journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. 
And when he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods of the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran to him, fell on his neck, kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Did you notice that? The father did not even respond to that. You know, when you go to Jesus and, and you're saying, Lord, I'm not worthy, and no, oh God, I've done this, oh God, the Father's not even going to listen to you. It's an insult to Him to listen to you because He has dealt with that. The Father said to His servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on Him. Put a ring on His hand and sandals on His feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered, and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, yet you never give me so much as a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. You know, when we want to know what someone is really like, you can't really say you know someone until you know their heart. You know, if I take John here and we say, Come on, let's get to know John, and we bring John up, and we spend an hour hearing everything about John, where he lives and where he was educated in his school and his wife and his children's names, you know, you could learn all the facts about John, but if you didn't know what was precious to him in his heart, you wouldn't know him at all. There's many religions in the world that say they know God, but there's only one place where God has shown his heart and what he loves, and that's at Calvary, where he opened his hands. And until a person sees Christ dying for him, they don't know God. If you don't know you are his joy, then you don't know him. And that's really the most shocking thing about this story that we're all so familiar with. There was two sons here who did not know the father. Did not know the father. Maybe it's not so so much of a surprise when we think of the younger son. He was away from home for such a long time. And so when he saw the joy of the father, he was astonished at the joy of his father. But the elder brother, he was offended at the joy of his father. And he was the son who was actually in the house all those years. And I believe that, you know, both those in the house and those outside of the house, both the church and the nation, really need a revelation of the generosity of the Father and the grace of the Father, the joy of the Father. You know, the word joy, to rejoice, is actually the root of the word grace. One definition of grace is that which affords joy. The scripture tells us that do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When we do not have joy in the house, the joy of the Lord in the church, we have nothing. If you walk into Hoddesdon now and, and say to people, I'm hoping for a good night out tonight, could you tell me where could I go to experience some joy? How many of those people would mention a church? 
That's how good a job the enemy's done at estranging the church from the grace of God, from the joy of their salvation. As I read this parable, the Lord showed me that I desperately needed a fresh revelation of the generosity of the Father because I heard my own heart in the words of the elder brother. The elder son who'd been serving his father all those years, he's a son of the father, yet in his heart he feels himself not to be a son but a servant. It's astonishing that it was the younger son who said to himself, I will say to my father, make me like a servant. But when he got home, the elder brother had been living that way for years. He had been living as a servant in the house in which he was a son. And he, the, the, the elder son, he never said how he felt to his father. He just buried his disappointments and he got on with it. I always thought in this story there was only one son who came to the end of himself, but there were two. One was exhausted at the end of himself for a lack of physical nourishment, but the other came to the end of himself for a lack of soul nourishment. The love of the father, he did not know how much he was loved. And that had to come into the light before it could be dealt with. And that's what the Lord, I believe, uh, spoke to us about concerning the heart, the revelation of the heart, the disappointment in the heart. That has to come out. It has to come into the light. Confess your sin one to another that you may be healed. The Lord, by a manifestation of His grace, would draw out of our hearts what is hidden there. The issues that we have, even with Himself. It doesn't take much of a manifestation of grace to expose hurt and disappointment, a sense of abandonment, the lies that the enemy has sown into our hearts. What often brings it out is a reaction to someone else's blessing. You think you're at this conference now and you get a text from someone in your church who tells you that amazing things are happening in the town. You know that other church that just started a few years ago and they have all that funny theology, not like us, and some of our folk went and left them. Apparently the Lord's really blessing them and they've tripled in size and they're seeing all these converts. And there's you've been praying in your church for 40 years for revival and seen so little. How does your heart feel towards the other church? How does your heart feel towards the Lord? Well, it may not be that that exposes disappointment or unbelief in your heart, but the Lord will find what does. He knows what trial or tribulation is going to expose in our heart. And make no mistake, until our hearts are exposed and dealt with, we're only playing at church. The Lord is coming to expose the necessity of our vulnerability so he can deal with the core issues, the roots of why we're even ministering. The party that the father threw for the younger son was a manifestation of grace offensive enough to stir up the hurt, the lie that was buried in the elder son, in the one who was in the house. Listen to what came out of his mouth. Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I did everything you said. Everything. I never broke a commandment. I kept all the doctrine of the church, all the tenets. I preached in the whole lot. You never give me so much as a goat. Never give me. And this son of yours who comes, who's spent all his money, doesn't even have the right theology, and you're going to bless him <laughs> with a manifestation of your grace? Can you hear the hurt and the pain in those words? On the outside, he appeared as the dutiful son, serving away, a picture of faithfulness, a picture of sobriety, doing what he thought would please a father. Yet all that time he did not know, he did not have a revelation of the generosity and the love of the Father. He did not really know him. 
God will allow us to come to the end of ourselves because he does not want us to go to a nation and attempt to represent a God we hardly know. He is not just a God who helps us with our limited plans and ambitions. He's a God who raises the dead. That's the God he is. Do you remember when Paul said he was in the province of Asia and he came to the end of himself? He said, I despaired even of life, but this happened that we may not depend on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. The elder brother thinks of his father as a hard taskmaster. Someone who takes from him rather than gives to him. Do you know the effect on an individual or a church who thinks that our father in heaven is a hard taskmaster? You become one yourself. Because you become what you worship. Folk in the church who are hard on those around them, quick to criticize, slow to show mercy or forgiveness, are that way because they believe God is like that. Where does it say that in the Bible? Matthew 25. Jesus told the story of the servant who buried his talents. Do you remember? Do you remember why he buried his talent? He said, I I knew you. I knew you were a hard taskmaster. In fear of you, I buried what you gave me. The person, the church, who sees the Father to be generous will be generous. Those who see him as hard and ungenerous will be hard and ungenerous. You see, freely you have received, freely give. You can't give freely which you have not received freely. You cannot give the grace of God freely to a nation that you have not received freely the grace of God. As Jesus said about the uh, prostitute who had been forgiven, those who have been forgiven much, love much, do you know how much you have been forgiven? This is how the elder brother saw the father. And we know that because of what the father says to him. The father, in seeing all his hurt and his pain, he immediately speaks to the root of the lie that the elder son has been laboring under, has been living under. And if you're here this morning and that's the way you feel, more like an employee of God than a son, then you have believed the lie. And what will set you free is the truth that the father ministered to the son. And I believe it's the truth really that the Lord will minister to an individual, to a denomination, to a nation that will move them out of religion into relationship, out of servanthood into sonship. It's the truth of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth really that by the Holy Spirit he shows us that we have been made sons and heirs of God. Look at the words of the Father to the Son in verse 31. Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. Didn't you know? Didn't you know? You're always with me. You have my presence, and you have my provision. Everything I have is yours. The truth that sets us free to live as sons is that we do not have to earn what is already ours, what has been freely given. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What estranges us from the grace of God is our attempts to earn what has been freely given. The elder brother had been living a lie. He'd been living as if the father was withholding something from him, some blessing. But the truth was that at the time the younger son left, if you look in verse 12, the father divided the inheritance among them. This is the magnitude of the grace of God that has been freely poured out in us. That through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we have already been given freely the blessings of the kingdom of God. Not as a reward for to be earned by obeying his commands as a servant earns his wages, but as an inheritance to be enjoyed by believing his promises, by believing that we are now who he says we are. Not who we feel ourselves to be, who he says we are. 
sons and heirs, those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And I believe the work of the Holy Spirit in the church is to convince us of what the religious mind can't accept, the magnitude of the grace of God. That's what I need to be convinced of. I need to, don't need to be convinced that I'm a sinner. I need to be convinced that I'm a son. That's my biggest burden, my biggest, because my enemy seeks to convince me that I am not a son. It's him who questions my identity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. For the natural mind cannot take in the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that God has given us. Grace runs contrary to what Paul called the basic principles of this world, which underpin every religious system in the world, that God blesses the deserving and he punishes the undeserving. Any religion in the world will tell you that. And that's the default position of the natural mind. That's the default position of the flesh. And that's why the religious class could not accept the revelation of the Father that Jesus brought. They could not accept grace because their whole position before God was based on their works. They had worked for years to make themselves righteous, to make themselves holy before God. So here's the shocking revelation. The harder you work for God in the belief that your achievements earn you the favor of God, the more you estrange yourself from the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. And now you can see why the accuser of the brethren robs the church of power. All he has to do is keep bringing up before us our lack in some area. And when he has us looking at our lack and what we don't have, it's so easy to plant the lie that that's God's fault. He's withholding something from you. Why don't you try harder? And that's how he'll estrange you from the grace of God. He'll get you to earn the grace of God. And so leaves the church the miraculous and the power of God. That's the original strategy with Eve. Who had been left everything in the garden. Satan brings her to the one tree. The one tree. And she's been told not to look at. And says have a good look at that. And for all the many blessings in your life. All Satan has to do to bring you down. Is to show you the one area of lack. In your life. Whatever that will be. Look hard enough on that. And eventually you'll believe the lie. That God is withholding something from you. The cross destroyed that lie. The cross destroyed that lie. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The harder you work for God in the belief that your achievements will earn you favor with God, the more you estrange yourself from the power and the grace of God. For how can the Holy Spirit help you or I add to Christ's work our righteousness to his? Like the elder brother, how can you attempt to earn what you've already been given at such a price? Such religiosity only leads to frustration, anger, estrangement, and burnout. That was Paul's challenge to the Galatian church. He warned them that if they turned back to trying to earn God's favor by what they did, the miracles would dry up. For they would estrange themselves from the grace of God, the power of God, to live the supernatural life of God. And maybe you turn your Bibles to Galatians 3. It's always worth turning to Galatians. We're just going to read two verses. Galatians 3, verse 5 and verse 6. This is the heart of Paul's challenge to that church. Tell me, he says... Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? In all our discussions about the finances drying up, should we not pause to discuss why the miraculous appears to have dried up in so many places? 
I've not been able to leave this book of Galatians for months. I'm riveted to it. I know it's a message to me. I believe it's a message to more than me. I believe it's a message to the evangelical church. I was brought up in the Catholic church. And after I got saved for many years, it was so easy for me, so easy, to point a finger at the Catholic church and say, thank God I no longer believe in salvation by works. I thank God that I was not like them. I thank God that my prayers were no longer like theirs. I thank God that my giving was no longer like theirs. I thank God that I went to a better church and I believed a better gospel. And I this and I that and I the other. Ring any bells? <laughs> Jesus told the story about the Pharisee in the temple, of course. And he was standing there and he thanked God that he was not like other men, especially the publican. Pastor Ruber has been leading us through a Bible study of Romans. And one morning we, we saw this revelation together. It really blessed us. In whatever area of your Christian life you're boasting, in that area you have come back under the law. If you have started to compare yourself favorably with the church down the road, watch out. Watch out. I'm not speaking about the Catholic Church. I agree with absolutely everything Jonathan said. I thank God for a revelation of his grace. I guess what I'm saying is I didn't half know it. There is so much more that God wants to give us. He wants to release us completely from trying to earn. Trying to earn, treating grace as a thing. Trying to earn something from him when he has given us everything. If you start to compare yourself favorably with the church down the road, watch out. It's the first symptoms of a case of self-righteousness. That's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's going to estrange you from the power of God. Whether an individual, a local church, or a denomination, the very best thing, the very thing you boast in as a strength, becomes your bondage, becomes your weakness, as soon as you think that's what's going to earn you the favor of God. So how do you stop? How do you learn to sit down to receive from God rather than spiritually be on your feet the whole time trying to save the world? I believe now by the grace of God that he makes us to lie down in green pastures by a revelation of his grace, you know. A revelation of his Holy Spirit of the completeness of Christ's work. We as his body are to grow up into him who is the head. And the head today is not running around in heaven, wringing his hands over the state of the world, the state of the church. He has sat down, for he has done it. He has done it. And to grow up into Christ is to grow up into sitting down. It's to grow up into the peace of God. Listen to Hebrews 4. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works. As God did from his, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In my mind, grace has caused a paradigm change in my thinking. For years, I did everything for God and exerted the church to do everything to this purpose, that we would find favor in his sight. That he would bless us, that he would bless us and ours, he would bless the work of our hands, that the church would grow, that all our sacrifices would be worth it. But for a son, a son to try and work himself into the favor of the father is an exercise in futility that can only lead to disappointment and burnout. I see now that I have been making every effort to enter his favor rather than make every effort to enter his rest. And the reason it will take you an effort to enter his rest is because you have an enemy who will oppose you from entering that rest. In this regard, so many plans and ideas and initiatives, the Holy Spirit could not anoint because they were a product of striving for success rather than a product of resting in his grace. There was no sweat allowed in the building of the temple. Remember that? 
So whatever area of church building I'm sweating in, I have to question now, what's the source of that? You cannot earn the favor of God. You already have it, not through your work, but through Christ's. Let me read you the scripture Jonathan read this morning again. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If that's not favor, what is? If that's not favor, what is favor? (coughs) That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. It's a generosity of God that leads people to repentance. In his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Church, believing in the fivefold ministry does not earn us the favor of God. We already have that. Practicing the fivefold ministry does not earn us the favor of God. For it's only by the grace of God that we practice such things. If grace can be merited, it is something less than grace. Everywhere these days our thoughts have been consumed with finance, with the cost of this and the cost of that. Yet one word stands clear through the New Testament. It's the word freely. And I want to bring you to a scripture on freely. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to ask you for grace now because I'm going to share some things which sometimes can be difficult to hear. And if I'm sharing things with you that are meant for me, I ask the Holy Spirit to block your ears so you don't hear them. And only quicken to you what you need to hear. The last thing you need to hear is condemnation. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world... You know what that is? It's performance. But the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. See, in our natural logic, in carnal thinking, we think that if we focus more on what we need to do, we'll get more done. But in the spiritual realm, fruitfulness does not come from focusing more on what we have to do, but rather focusing more on what Christ has already done. And so Paul begins that second chapter of the Corinthians by declaring that in order to move effectively in the power of the Holy Spirit while ministering, he has to determine to know know nothing but Christ and him crucified. In other words, he's putting down a marker, a basis for his ministry. He's saying it's not what he is doing, it's rather based on what Christ has done. In fact, he deliberately makes mention of all his weaknesses to emphasize that any fruit from his ministry is not down to his giftedness. What he's doing is down to what he's believing that Christ has already done. And that's the great church, or the great truth really, that the Lord would have his church to recover. That the church of Jesus Christ is built by the Holy Spirit through men and women who avail of the incredible resources of the Spirit that have already been given to us through the finished work of Christ. Such men do not draw from the resources of the Spirit because of what they do, but rather because of what they believe Christ has done. If the resources of the Spirit were released to us on the basis of what we were doing, or not doing in our churches, whether we had three prayer meetings a week, whether we had 30 prayer meetings a week, whether our emphasis was on evangelism or social action or worship, that would mean that the blessings of the new covenant were conditional on our righteousness, but they are not. I love Martin's testimony about that church she went to see, looking for the key. What's the key? What's the key? What are you doing? What are you doing? And all you heard was, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. 
So just as with the manifestation of the power of the kingdom of God in our salvation, the manifestation of the power of the kingdom in our ministries is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, our sanctification as we heard this morning. It's not of ourselves, it's by his grace. Colossians 2 declares this. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As so. As you have received him, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And listen, church, you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. The mark of how far we as ministers of the same gospel as Paul have drifted away from the righteousness of Christ as the basis for our moving in the favour and blessings of God is seen in how much emphasis we place on people's behaviour as the reason why we know blessing or not. It's also seen in how quick we are to bemoan our lack of resources, lack of material, lack of personnel for any lack of growth we are experiencing. Paul worked in a far more difficult environment than us and he planted growing churches. And our usual reaction to that is to say, yep, that was Paul. But what Paul says is in the Corinthians is, no, it wasn't me. That's the point. It wasn't me. He's saying, my testimony is that I know it was not my righteousness or my giftedness as a man that resulted in the blessing of the Spirit, but that I purpose to turn away from Paul's doing and back to Paul's believing on Christ's doing. We have access to exactly the same resources as Paul did in the Spirit. It's just that he knew that the believer accessed those spiritual resources by believing they were his by inheritance. Whereas we, in attempting to access them through holy behavior, have slipped from grace back towards works and estranged ourselves from the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is given by grace. Grace cannot be merited. The moment we begin to rely on merit, whether that be on righteous living, best practice, correct knowledge of doctrine, whatever it is, we make it more difficult for the Spirit to flow. For how can he who comes to lift up Christ and his righteousness help us to add our righteousness to his? Look at the heart again of the revelation that Paul says the Spirit brings to those who are spiritually mature. Look at verse 12 again. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The enemy is the one who delights with an emphasis on our performance. For he knows that if it's of the flesh, inevitably it will lead to the deception of pride. Whatever area we start to compare ourselves favorably with other churches and whatever area we boast in, it's a sure sign that we've come back under the law in that area. We think our performance will end us or earn us more favor with God. I may be wrong in this, but I suspect that there is far too much emphasis in the apostolic church on the apostolic church, our distinctiveness, our heritage. It's what Jonathan said. Why are those churches getting so many converts to preaching Christ and Him crucified. It was a complete and total emphasis on Christ that formed the original apostolic church. And that's why we struggle to find an institutional blueprint in the pages of Acts. Because you can't plan or resource a move of the Spirit. No man-made strategy or tradition can imitate or resource that. There is no silver bullet initiative or no strategy, I'm sorry, that the NLT is going to come up with that's going to bring blessing to the apostolic church. For the Lord has already given a 100% sure strategy. It's called the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit, that you have the wisdom of Christ, you have within you the same power that rose Christ from the dead. And it's the release of those rivers of living water that is the Lord's one and only strategy for the growth of his church. 
the enemy will do anything to distract us from that truth, the truth that we have been freely given. If we dare to believe it, if we dare to believe that God is that generous, that the work of Christ is now really the only work that is being assessed. It's amazing, you know, even under the law, when a man brought a, a lamb to cover his sin, it was the lamb that was inspected, it was not the owner. How did we as a church go back to having the church inspected as the reason why God would bless or not bless, release his blessings or not release his blessings. I believe the fundamental problem for us as a church is that we have a total mixture of grace and of law, of new covenant and of old covenant. We're trying to carry the new wine of the free grace of God in an old wineskin called my performance. We are constantly trying to earn through our best efforts, best practice, what is in fact now an inheritance, no longer a reward. Under the old covenant, the blessings of God were a reward for obedience. Disobedience brought a drought. In other words, the emphasis was on us and our performance, our doing, what we need to do as an apostolic church. Under the new covenant, it is an inheritance. No one earns an inheritance. It comes through the family line. And in Christ, you are a son and a co-heir. We access the resources of our inheritance simply by believing or knowing that they're ours. The emphasis is not on what we do, it's on who we are. And that's what the Spirit is trying to convince the church, of who we are. Paul said to the Galatians, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of a son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's why Paul prayed for the Ephesians above all. He loved them enough to pray for them that they'd have a revelation of the love of God. They'd be rooted and established in the love of the Father. Because only there, from that foundation, can they go on to grasp the height and the width and the love and the grace of God in all its abundance and be filled with all the fullness of God. Only from a foundation of knowing how much you're loved. Only when you know how much the Father loves you can you get your head around what He's given you already. When we know the true value of Christ, we know that he is the biggest overpayment of debt in history. Someone said to me recently, you know, God doesn't answer prayer. God never answers prayer. He always over-answers prayer. He always over-answers prayer. He doesn't meet us according to our need. He meets us according to the abundance of his generosity. He doesn't meet us according to who we are. He meets us according to who he is. So often our prayers are limiting God. You can't move through our prayers. Our ambitions are too small. We want a God who helps us with our plans. He says, no, I'm the God who raises the dead. Give me something dead to raise. Praise God. We say we believe this truth, that when sin presently abounds, grace is presently superabounding. But in practice, we're living as a church as if revival comes to the church that behaves more than the church that simply believes. The truth we have not grasped is how much we have been freely given. And the answer the gospel gives us is everything. For what more is there than the Holy Spirit of God that you have been freely given? Did Paul tell the Ephesians that in Christ we have now been blessed with some spiritual blessings and we'll get the rest later? Or did he not say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ each of us have revival freely given to us. The fact that we've fallen into the practice of believing for it sometime soon when we've cleaned ourselves up a bit more, have a better prayer meeting with more people praying more earnestly, that suits the enemy down to the ground. He doesn't mind how long you'll pray for revival as long as you'll never come to the place of believing what you already have. In summary, what we look to as our strength is in fact our greatest weakness. It's our dependency on our own resources. 
There is such a pervasive and subtle emphasis on performance, on numbers, on finance, that we have systematically moved our foundations for bearing fruit off what Christ has accomplished and onto what we are accomplishing or could accomplish if we tried harder. And that is the implicit message in many of our preaching. Try harder. On a personal level, what reveals to me how much store I've placed in people's efforts rather than the Holy Spirit is the disappointment I carry. Disappointment with members, disappointment with leadership, disappointment with church. Our present soul-searching as a denomination will ultimately be fruitless if at some point we don't look up from our obsession with what we're doing to examine what we're believing. The answer to the question of how we can bear more fruit as a fellowship will not be found in examining how we can better achieve some future goals but rather in how we can better receive the goals that have already been achieved for us. To determine to know only the work of Christ is to become more conscious of what he has done than I am doing. And that means for each of us to become more righteousness conscious than sin conscious, more God conscious than self conscious. Even as a church, we are too self conscious. How much time have we spent debating what we should be doing as a church, what apostles and prophets and other fivefold ministers should be doing? Ephesians 4 does not say he gives some to do apostleship, some to do prophecy. He says he gives some to be apostles. What we do springs from who we know we are in Christ. To know him is to be still in him, is to rest in him. And what he has done. I'm not an apostle, an apostle because of what I do. I'm not a Christian because of what I do. I'm a Christian because his grace has made me so. And I receive that grace and I operate in that grace by faith in what he has done. To each of us, grace has been given to the measure of Christ's gift. Not will be given if we try harder. It has been given. The apostolic church should not be about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. It is about the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness poured out in the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Our work should not be to preserve the institution but to empower the people through the ministry of the grace of God. We are called to minister that grace through the anointed proclamation of the word. A proclamation of grace that causes faith to arise in the hearts of the saints. As Jonathan said, tell them they're loved. And see the result. Sing about the love of God. See the result in the people's faces. Establish people in the love of the Father. And in knowing that they are beloved, they can go on to comprehend and grow and take hold of the love of God. That they may be filled with all the fullness of God. That his church will be full of his glory, his love, his goodness, his grace. When they know what it is to freely receive, then they will freely give. The greatest empowerment for our people that will see them reign over sin and the power of the grace of God is not to tell them their faults and exalt them to try harder. It's to proclaim to them the truth that they have been forgiven and they have been redeemed from under the condemnation of the law of performance and they are now the beloved in Christ. You know the strategy of the enemy against the church is the same as it was against Christ. He simply seeks to question our identity. When the devil came to Jesus, he said several times, If you are the Son of God, why don't you do? Come on. If you are, why don't you do? But actually, he left out a very important word, because when the Father spoke over Jesus, he didn't say, he didn't call him my son, he called him my beloved son. The devil was very careful not to mention the word beloved, because he knew that when a person knows that they're loved, they can resist temptation much better. They can resist the lie that they have to earn the love of God. When you know you're loved, you're set free from that lie. I believe what the Spirit is saying to the church concerning grace can be summed up in one verse. I'm going to leave you with this. It's a verse the Lord quickened to me last year in Psalm 116. The Lord spoke these words to my soul. David spoke them to his own soul. 
Psalm 116, verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You know, last night I thought of the words that Pastor Manuel had shared, the word the Lord had given him about the apostolic church. And the word was, you're too big to remain this small. You know, and I felt the Lord said to me, Phelan, that's me too. I'm too big to remain that small in your mind. So the Lord says to his church, Return to your rest, O my church, for I have dealt bountifully with you. Praise the Lord.